play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Rick Astley. Rick, of course, is most famous for the 1987 worldwide number one hit, Never Gonna Give You Up, which has now been listened to more than a billion times online. Two decades after its first success, the song blew up again in 2007 because of a silly internet phenomenon called Rickrolling. If you aren't familiar, we're going to talk all about it later in the show. And then in 2020, when people were bored at home and didn't have anything to do during the pandemic, Rickrolling resurfaced again, refueling the song's popularity. Today on Your Last Meal, we will investigate a theory. Molecular gastronomy is the culinary equivalent of Rick Rolling. Inventor and molecular gastronomy enthusiast Scott Heimendinger will join the show to talk about the art of molecular gastronomy, also known as modernist cooking. Some of the hallmarks are foams and gels and strange textural transformations and surprise and delight. Big emphasis on the surprise and delight. Scott is a master at using modernist cooking techniques to make culinary jokes. Scott's going to demo some really fun stuff later in the show. But first, my conversation with Rick Astley. Rick Astley was 21 years old when his song Never Gonna Give You Up became a worldwide phenomenon. He worked a handful of years after that and then retired at 27 so he could raise his daughter. Years later, Rick returned to music and he just wrapped up the mixtape tour. Touring the country with New Kids on the Block, Salt and Peppa, and En Vogue. And he was on tour when we had this conversation, zooming in from the bowels of a venue somewhere in North America. You've been traveling around doing this mixtape tour. It's the nostalgia of my youth. My second concert ever was New Kids on the Block when I was nine years old. I went with my mom to the Oakland Coliseum. Wow. I'll tell the guys, don't you worry. Tell them. Be like, this lady named Rachel yeah. said you were her second concert. <laughs> I have the beach towel. Um, so I'm wondering that <laughs> for you, if you were going to have a nostalgia tour that you yeah. were going to watch, who would be on your lineup for like the greatest hits of your youth? Well, there's a part of me that if I was going to have a dinner and have whoever I wanted to be there from the world of music and all the rest of it and the people who influenced me, Yes, I could certainly pick some people from around the time when I was, you know, buying records and getting into bands. But there's something in me that would like to have the, the older greats there, starting with Elvis, even Sinatra, uh, into the Beatles. I saw Paul McCartney recently, actually, on, on the tour he's on at the moment. And it brought a lot of things home to me, to be honest. Partly the fact that he was about to turn 80 was a huge thing because it puts into perspective how long he's been making music. Because he was a kid when he started making yeah. music. And the way that he plays and the passion that he plays with and everything, it's just incredible. And I just think those guys, they set down the ground rules for everybody. That's the strange thing about music. I think people feel sometimes that people have a golden age, but he actually sang a couple of new songs and he's still an absolutely amazing songwriter, you know? And I think that there'd be so much to learn from people like that, I think. So I'd rather go back to an earlier, earlier period 
than even when I was a kid and the records I was buying. What was your first record that you bought? Do you remember? Well, I can remember the first single. And the reason I bought that, I didn't actually buy it. I obtained it um, because I bought a pair of jeans. And on that day, there was a little record store and you could get a single if you bought a pair of jeans. And my dad had given me the money to go in. He was in the car outside waiting for me. And I went in and bought the jeans. And the guy said, what single do you want? And I said, what? And he said, well, you get a single today if you buy jeans. I went, "Uh, I'll have number one. And I had no idea what it was. Um, And it turned out to be I Feel Loved by Donna Summer, which is a great record. And it's a great record in so many ways because Donna Summer is just amazing. But also the sound of that record was incredible. And obviously I must have heard it. It was a number one record at the time. But I think going home and actually that record becoming mine and owning it was quite an interesting thing, really, because it was kind of like I'm the youngest of four kids. So I always played my older brother's and my older sister's records. I'd rather have them force fed to me. And this is the first time that that record was mine. So I played it to death. Speaking of older siblings, I want you to okay. tell a story about your brother challenging you to eat candy bars. Oh, my God. I was young. I probably was like 10. And we have a candy bar called a Milky Bar, which is white chocolate. And they're pretty small. And I thought, well, I can eat 20 of them. Of course I can, because he challenged me to it. I thought, I can eat 20 of those. And he said, but well, you've got to do it in 20 minutes. And I thought, I can still do that, you know. So anyway, I got about 15 or 16 in and I was doing pretty well, but then I hit a wall and it's not like a kind of, oh, I can do this wall. It's like everybody move away quickly or else you're all going to be sprayed white right now. (sighs) So he took great glee in the fact that I puked for quite a while and it kind of taught me a lesson, really. I'm definitely more in the moderation sort of area when it comes to chocolate. And don't get me wrong, I, I love like any kind of chocolate desserts as well in a restaurant, but I've not been eating a lot of dessert in this last sort of, Listen, you only have to look at new kids on the block and that'll put you off eating anything for life. Those guys are fit, man. I'm telling you. Yeah, you could grate cheese on their abs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do like to drive. I read that you said you once drove from New York to L.A. just for fun. Um, Yeah. You drove from Budapest back to the U.K. after a gig. So I'm wondering, what is your favorite road snack? What do you get when you stop at the gas station? Well, that depends. I mean, that's one of the beauties of Europe. I plan my stops, plan what I'm going to eat and how I'm going to eat and everything. Take Italy for an example. My wife and I laugh and joke about this, but we have about four coffee stops in the last two hours of leaving Italy because even in the gas stations in Italy, and if anybody's been, they'll understand what I mean, you can go in and get the best panini you've ever had in your life Mm. and the best espresso. Just stood there at the bar while people are paying for their gas. It's absolutely incredible, and I love it, and I love the atmosphere of it as well. It's just it's just so Italian, and I just love it. So even in a gas station, you can get amazing coffee. I don't like the coffee in France much. Sorry, France, but I just don't. Like, for instance, Denmark as well. My wife is Danish, and I drive to Denmark a lot. Our daughter lives there. There's a couple of different things in Denmark. There's a thing called a frischnapper, which is like um, it's a pastry, but it's I've never seen it anywhere outside of Denmark, and it's like a twisted thing with seeds, poppy seeds and what have you, but it's also got some sort of sweetness to it on the inside. And it's a breakfast thing, really, but if they've still got one at four o'clock and I'm going home at four, I'm having one. And they also have hot dog wagons. They're super clean. They're super amazing. They're called Pulsabon. Literal translation is hot dog wagon, I guess, or sausage wagon. (laughs) I have a sneaky one of those as well before I leave Denmark. And I guess as well, places like, let's say Spain, for instance, but there's just something about eating tomato bread for breakfast. Oh, I love pan, pan, that. Pan, pan, pan con tomato for breakfast before you're about to drive home from Spain 
it's just one of the things I absolutely love. You're classy, though. So I'm talking about like from an American point of view where we take a road trip okay. and you stop and you get like chips and all the like car I do snacks. I as well. Okay, that's what I <laughs> yeah. want to know. It's like, do you okay. eat in the okay, car? Okay, well, car snacks. Yeah. Well, for instance, when we started this tour, it started in Cincinnati. And I was in Los Angeles for about a month before that. And I went skiing for a week as well up in Utah. So I drove it instead of flying. I thought, no, I don't want to get on a flight and get irritated by that and the whole I don't like flying anyway. So I thought, I'm just going to take a few days and I'll drive it and I'll just have a good think about stuff, listen to some audio books. I really like coffee. I'll find a Starbucks because obviously I know what I'm getting there. I'm not saying Starbucks is the best coffee, but you know what you're getting at least. So I did a bit of that. But I also, I've been trying to be quite healthy, actually, because I wanted to kind of lose a bit of weight on this tour anyway. So I, w- I would get like bags of nuts and raisins and just mm-hmm. chomp on that. I've been pretty good. I've sort of not had a lot of desserts on this tour. And I love dessert. Don't get me wrong. I really do. But the thing is, once you're in the car, if that's all that's in the car and you've got some miles to do, then I'm pretty good at just munching on that. I got some blueberries every morning as well, which sounds super healthy. I'm not super healthy, by the way. And if my wife was here, she'd be sniggering in the corner there right now. Don't get me wrong. I've definitely had moments of I need chocolate. I just need a couple of chunks of chocolate and a coffee and I can drive for another 200 miles, no problem. What is your go-to road trip snack? I used to be a Cheeto Puffs person. I only ate Cheetos when I was on a road trip, so it felt like a very special occasion. But last weekend, I was driving a few hours out to a campsite, and I was starving. So I stopped at a gas station, and I got a big bag of sea salt popcorn and an ice-cold chocolate milk, and that was real good. And if it's a long road trip and I'm not driving, I am a big advocate of the road trip salad. All right, time for a quick break. But when we come back, is molecular gastronomy the culinary equivalent of rickrolling? Stay tuned to find out. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes.
2007, Rick found himself at the center of a worldwide internet prank, a phenomenon called Rickrolling. Here's how it works. Let's say I send you an email and I say something like, hey, what do you think about this restaurant for dinner tonight? And I include a link. You click on the link. But instead of it opening to a restaurant's website, you get the Rick Astley never going to give you up video. Hijinks ensues, a hilarious gotcha. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, Rick Rowling re-emerged during the pandemic. And now new generations have been introduced to the song that has over a billion clicks online. I have to ask you this question. Everyone asks you this question, but what's your opinion on the Rick Rowling? It's kind of crazy. And obviously being on this tour amplifies that to some degree because, you know, we're all singing our old songs and stuff. And it is a trip down memory lane. Donnie says that every single night, Donnie Warburg, you know, and it is. But I think what that song has done for me throughout my whole life is pretty amazing. And even though I kind of did retire and kind of crept out the back door while no one was looking, it still kept giving me a great life. And so what's happened with Rick Rolling is just an extension of that, a massive one, obviously. And the fact that that song has found its place on the internet somehow is unfathomable. I don't think any PR person, record company executive, anybody could have designed that. You can't choose for it. So the way I've treated it, I've very lightly embraced it. I don't run away from it because I think that would be weird as well. Bizarrely, even though I'm in the video and yes, I'm the Rick and Rick rolling, it's not mine. It does it, It's the internet. It's not mine. It's, and I, I do get a thrill out of the fact that young kids pick up on songs, not just mine. It really, really makes me happy. I love it. I think it's great. But it's in my DNA. It's a massive part of my life, that song. You know, So I have no negativity towards it at all. None. I might have done when I was 28. Right. I was kind of running away from it. You know what I mean? It had yeah. burnt me out and... The whole thing had burnt me out. I wasn't, I wasn't the same person I am today in terms of emotions about it at all because I'd done nothing else for five years to just bang my head against the wall singing that song and a few others, you know what I mean? So yeah. that just gets old quick. But now, I love it. The idea behind Rickrolling is thinking you're going to get one thing. And being surprised when you get something totally different. Something completely unexpected. So I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that molecular gastronomy, or modernist cooking, is the rickrolling of the culinary world. A chef might serve what looks exactly like a plump little mandarin orange, with its stem and leaf still attached. But when you cut into the mandarin, you discover it's actually foie gras, encapsulated in a mandarin jelly and herb oil. One of the chefs most famous for molecular gastronomy is Chef Ferran Adria, who owned the now-shuttered El Bulli restaurant in Spain, which was named the best restaurant in the world many times over. He was famous for serving what looked exactly like a green olive. But when you bit into it, olive-flavored liquid exploded in your mouth. Molecular gastronomy is a term that's used to describe cooking from a scientific point of view. Some of the hallmarks are foams and gels and strange textural transformations and surprise and delight. That's Scott Heimendinger. What the hell am I? Um, I'm an inventor who works in culinary innovation. I'm trying to make people at home cook better through technology. Scott has worked for companies that develop home sous vide machines, and he worked at Modernist Cuisine. The Culinary Research Lab, publisher of very, very heavy, very thorough books on the science of cooking. I worked there for seven years in total. And during his time at Modernist Cuisine, Scott got to be a fly on the wall when the lab hosted some of the world's most revered chefs 
for elaborate modernist meals. It was sort of a flex to show off creativity and cool things. Now, I didn't work in the kitchen at all. I was off doing laser geeky stuff. But the chefs prepared several courses that had this element of surprise. Probably the best example was the quail egg. So you've got this group of people together. You're sitting at a fancy white tablecloth inside this industrial laboratory getting served this, like, really epic once-in-a-lifetime dinner that, like, you can't make a reservation and you can't pay for, right? And then the servers come over to the table and they drop in front of each guest a tiny little nest with a tiny little quail egg with the top cut off, the shell and everything. And you're instructed to just slurp it. And it's, it's raw, right? And so... Everybody starts looking around nervously, right, until the first person is brave enough. And then you, you see, as each person takes it, you see this, like, little devilish grin appear because they know the secret that it's not actually a quail egg at all. It's spherified, like, passion fruit juice and mango or something that was meticulously constructed to be indistinguishable from a raw quail egg. And so Nathan, the founder of Modernist Cuisine, he would say that the flavor of that dish is relief. (laughs) I I love that. This strange style of cooking felt brand new when it appeared on the fine dining scene a little more than a decade ago. But Scott says the concept has been around for centuries, just with fewer magical powders and vacuums and spherification techniques. Back in the 1400s, if you were invited to a super fancy like Game of Thrones party or whatever they were doing back then, you might see, for example, meat fruit. Are you familiar with meat fruit? No. Okay. So you're at this big feast and they're doing all these courses and whatever. And then in between courses, it would look like a tray of fruit. It was actually like minced up meat coated with a like flour and something like shellac that was meant to look like a fake apple. It was a fake out, right? You think you're going to take a bite of an apple. You bite into this thing. It's pork. That is a very old idea. And... All the, like, spherified olives and the foams and the fake-out eggs and all this kind of stuff is in that spirit of what you're cooking or what you're, what you're giving somebody to eat doesn't just have to be about the ingredients and the flavors. It can also be about a joke or some emotional thing or some surprise that plays with the difference between your expectations and reality. Scott and I are standing in his kitchen where he prepared a demo. What are we going to do today? What are you going to show me? Okay, so Rick Astley has become famous for the Rick role, right? Which is this chasm between expectations and reality. You expect to see a video of, I don't know, a, a penguin on a unicycle or whatever, and then you get the chorus to the song instead. So I thought we would play with some foods that look like one thing and are or taste like something else. This is not an original idea, uh, but it's something that we could do together that's kind of fun. Fake sushi. And it's a roll. And it's a roll, yes. (laughs) There's a a technique that folks might know about called vacuum compression, where you put fruit inside a chamber vacuum sealer, and you suck out all the air, and you let it suck in some water, and it changes the look and texture of that fruit. And watermelon is a dead ringer for tuna when you do this. So you want to make some compressed watermelon? Scott starts by cutting open a watermelon and sawing off a chunk that looks just like a brick of sushi-grade tuna. I'm just going to take a slab right out of the middle here. We'll cut off the edges. Doesn't it look like tuna already? It right? does. Like we're, it does. We're, we're most of the way there. 
We'll put it in here. We are going to add a little flavor to our watermelon with strawberry guava nectar, which will just like pour right over. So what's going to happen is when we put this in the chamber vac, it's going to suck all the air out of the space around, which sucks all the air out of the little holes in the watermelon. Um, and then when it reapplies pressure, all those holes are going to get flooded with the juice that we put around. Okay. Okay. Over to the chamber vac. To the chamber. I think everybody keeps their chamber vacuum sealer in their entry closet. closet. I'll close the lid. It's going to start doing its thing. It takes about a minute. Here we go. It'll look like it's boiling. Um, that's just oh. all the air coming out. And it happens instantly. Yeah, pretty fast. Did you see it just get yes. like so much darker really nice. quick? Isn't that cool? Look at that. That is like a dead ringer for tuna, right? It is. Wow. It's got the translucency, the subsurface scattering, if you're into ray tracing. And it looks denser. Uh-huh. Uh, because we've taken all the air that was inside and just replaced it with this liquid. Scott slices up the slab of compressed watermelon, just like it was slices of tuna for a sushi roll. Hey, you want to try? Mmm. It was like fruit punch. Two great tastes that taste great together. Mm-hmm. Also, um, I work for Reese's and I'm suing you. <laughs> Scott lays out a piece of nori and spreads sushi rice on top. Only this rice has been cooked in coconut milk, so it matches the sweet tropical dessert theme. And if you want, you can add a little green color. Here we're using kiwi. These kiwis are so freaking delicious, just by the by. And then we will gingerly assemble this. No ginger sushi pun intended. That was a missed opportunity, I think. (laughs) So I'm going to attempt to roll this, which I am admittedly, like, not great at. Stay with me. (gasps) And now we have a Rickroll. Oh, my God! Okay, for people who can't see what just happened, that was F-word amazing. I'm not allowed to say that on my show. Um... Scott just rolled up the sushi roll, and then when it got to its final roll, what does it say on there? It says Rick. It says Rick, and you cut it out. What did you use, a knife? A laser. (gasps) Of course you did. Of course. You used a laser to cut Rick into the nori. Yeah, what am I, a monster? (laughs) (laughs) The letters R-I-C-K span the length of the sushi roll, and it's super easy to read because of the contrasting white of the coconut rice against the dark green of the nori. Pure surprise and delight. I didn't see it coming. I know it's not as satisfying to hear this happen. So luckily, coincidentally, I was filming Scott making the roll. So you can see a video of the entire process, including the surprise at the end on Instagram. I'm at Hello Rachel Bell. That is so freaking cool. Have you ever done that before? With nori? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I spent way too much time laser cutting Nori. Let's slice the Rick roll. Okay. I'm going to get a... This dude, you're the best. <laughs> Your other guests don't laser cut bespoke sushi rolls for you? No, but my other guests are <laughs> <laughs> Okay, should we try the sushi? Yeah, let's try it. Mmm. It works. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's unusual. You don't expect it. Mm-hmm. Look, if people are eating watermelon and mustard on TikTok, yeah. this could totally do. The coconut flavor goes really well with the watermelon. Why, thank you. Mm-hmm. 
Rick got his name lasered into a piece of nori. Something Scott invented and tried to sell to sushi chefs. But what about me? I didn't want you to feel left out, though, so I made something special for you. Scott held out a bag of soft taco-sized tortillas, a common brand that you'd buy at the supermarket. Would you grab a tortilla? Yeah. <gasps> My face! <laughs> it's a face-a-dia. It's a face-a-dia? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Scott used a different kind of laser to print a photo of my face onto the tortilla. Another technique he invented that was sometimes used to impress guests at the modernist cuisine dinners. What happened to my head? I look like Gorbachev. Yeah, it's not great with contrast. <laughs> this is so freaking cool. So basically, you can throw the best parties because you can put images on food and laser cut things on food. Laser faces all day long. It is way better than just like your name on a cake. Do you actually do this when you have people over? Sort of. I can show you one other cool thing. Sure. Do you recognize what these are? They look like frosting. Yeah. They are pigmented ganaches in paint tubes. And we threw my sister a Bob Ross cake painting party. So I've got phthalo blue and something something green and adjective yellow and happy little clouds white totally Mm -hmm. and with these pigmented ganaches and then just like a sheet cake uh, with fondant and some palette knives you can a hundred percent follow along a bob ross painting tutorial and so everybody made like mountains and happy little trees and streams and a hidden rock and it totally totally worked out so there is some like fun party stuff. This matches exactly what you were saying. There's the ingredients and there's the flavor, but this is the pure whimsy. And it really is a freaking delight. (laughs) That's like eating is supposed to be, it's an experience that we get to have, right? There's a reason that our brains think stuff tastes good. It is emotional. It's not just always sustenance. Sometimes it's only sustenance, but when it can be fun and great, Why not? I mean, my little Gorbachev head here is bringing me so much joy. Good, good, good. Only 40 minutes on the laser. (laughs) Oh, wow. To see my tortilla face and that watermelon sushi, go to Hello Rachel Bell, that's B-E-L-L-E, on Instagram. When we come back, Rick Astley's last meal. So the big question of the show, what would your last meal be? It sort of changes every day. We were in Portofino, which is probably one of the most glamorous and in some ways can be glitzy places in the world. There's always super yachts in the harbor there. It's a tiny little harbor. And we went to a restaurant at the very, very, very end of the harbor. It's literally right on on the water. Like You can put your feet in the water. Mm. And it's a simple old fishing hut where they used to store all the nets and all the cages and everything. And they've turned it into a restaurant. So we sat down and my wife noticed that they had raw prawns. I don't think I've ever had that. I've had a lot of unusual things, especially in Japan and places. So we ordered the raw prawns and they were absolutely amazing. And I wouldn't recommend anybody do that unless you're somewhere great and you trust them and they know what they're doing. It was just unbelievable. And we had an absolutely beautiful bottle of white wine as well. Super crisp. It was gorgeous. So I'd have to go back to that because it was just such an experience. The whole night was amazing. You're literally by the ocean. You can almost taste it. And we're eating raw, big prawns from it. 
So that would be the first thing. Again, staying in Italy a little bit, because I think it is probably my go-to place for food. Uh, we've been on holiday in Sardinia a lot, and they have a thing they're called bataga, which is, I think, well, it's a fish that's been dried, and then you shave it. Or you can even kind of almost grate it into a dust kind of thing. Have you had bataga? Do you yeah. know Yeah, somebody else yeah. actually chose it for their last meal. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. It's so unusual, you see. It's really unusual. And also, you don't see it that often. So every time I see it, I just have to have it. And I, it's actually the inside, egg sack that they That's what, that's, that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. You're absolutely right. That's what it is. I was just, yeah, yeah. They do it on spaghetti vongoli uh, very often down there. Or you can mm. just have it on a spaghetti, to be honest, with olive oil. And it's amazing anyway. But I really love spaghetti vongoli and the joint thing going on with that. It's partly to do with memories. We went there for 10 years straight with some friends of ours. And their kids were the same age as our daughter, roughly. We were in the south part of Sardinia and the north is super, super shishi. It's where all the kind of like billionaires go and it's the billionaires playground. And down the south, it ain't. <laughs> it's pretty simple down there in certain places and it's just great. It was like going back in time where you felt totally safe to just let the kids just run on the beach mm-hmm. and just, and the water's incredible. Almost everything you eat there is just pretty amazing. There's a lot of from field to plate kind of thing, if you know what I mean. Like where we bought all our vegetables because we we stayed in the house, we rented a house and we cooked at home sometimes and went out for dinner sometimes. Those vegetables came out of the garden that the old woman had. So anyway, maybe I'm a bit over romanticizing it, but we just had some really good food in Sardinia. And that one sort of brings up a lot of memories for me. And if I was going to go to like a main course after the pasta, one of my favorite things is lamb. I love lamb of any description. My wife makes an amazing shredded lamb with pomegranate and mint. And for a dessert, I think I'd have to go for a tiramisu because Mm. the first time I had a tiramisu, I was probably in Italy and I was probably like 21 when I first went away to do promotional records. And the crazy thing was, because I'd had like a really big hit record, super, super lucky straight off the bat, I used to get taken out by like the head executive from the label. So we'd always go to some super fancy restaurant. And I just thought tiramisu was this godlike sort of from the clouds sort of thing that you couldn't get in normal restaurants. I thought, whatever this is, we need to come here again. But obviously you can get tiramisu anywhere in Italy and anywhere in the world kind of. But I just thought it was the most amazing thing I'd ever tasted in my life. It also, I love a chocolate mousse, a straight up chocolate mousse, by the way. I'm an old romantic, I think. I think that's what it is. There's something about about food that evokes a lot of memory, I think. I think I'm all over the cosy memory of food. For his last meal, Rick Astley wants to travel to Portofino, Italy for raw prawns and a bottle of crisp white wine. Then on to Sardinia for spaghetti vongole, spaghetti and clam sauce with botarga. Do you guys remember who also chose spaghetti botarga for their last meal? It was another 80s icon, Candice Cameron Bure, Ms. DJ Tanner herself. Okay, back to Rick's last meal. For his main course, Rick wants his wife's shredded lamb with pomegranate and mint and for dessert tiramisu and chocolate mousse and now the speed round what is your perfect birthday cake it's got to be chocolate uh if you go to the movies what's your perfect movie theater snack i like popcorn i don't know whether you do it here salty and sweet mixed together and they have to put it in gradually so it layers like that so it's a surprise every handful they do that at the movie theater yeah they do it in the uk if you ask them yeah Oh, that's awesome. Well, that's kind of close to my next question. What is a food that is the best in the UK that you feel like is not as good anywhere else? You've been around the world. Well, we have this thing about fish and chips 
and also about what we call Sunday lunch, which would be a roast, a roast dinner, as we call it, right? Whether it's any better than anywhere else, it doesn't matter. It's just when you've been traveling and you go to like either a nice place or, or even like a country pub, a country pub is probably the best place to have it, to be honest, like a nice pub, you know? and have a roast on a Sunday. That's just something we look forward to. Because again, I'm being an old romantic. It's a tradition. And fish and chips. You can have fish and chips anywhere, but I like fish and chips from a fish and chip shop in Britain. Do people still (laughs) call it a chippy? Yeah, yeah, big time, yeah. I've never liked that term, to be honest. I like calling it fish and chip shop. That's what I like calling it. (laughs) (laughs) The chippy is so cute, though. Yeah, I don't know. No, it's a bit common for me, darling. It's a bit common for me. Fish and chip shop. (laughs) Our, Our fish and chip shop. We live in that in a nice suburb, right? And our fish chip shop, oosh, you can eat inside. It's not just takeaway wrapped up in mm. paper. And you can actually have prawn cocktail and a glass of wine. Boom. <laughs> You're so <laughs> fancy. And that was Rick Astley's last meal. If you're ever in London, check out his brew pub. Mikella, which is a, a Danish brewery. They made a few beers for me, three beers. So, yeah, we've got a bar in the East End of London. We opened just before COVID. But it's up on its feet still, and it's rocking, and um, it's great. There's some good food in there as well. So, yeah, it's fun. I need to get in there more. I need to go make beer. I've only, I have helped make one beer. Yeah. I need to make more, to be honest, yeah. But it's super exciting. It's just a nice way of kind of getting away from our world, you know what I mean, and doing something completely different. So, yeah, I love it. Find a link to McKellar's in the show notes. Okay, it's going to cut off any minute. Bye, Rick. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Cheers. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you. you. Ugh, podcast hosts. They're just like us. You guys, I only have the free version of Zoom. So sometimes these goodbyes, they're hectic. Thanks to Scott Heimendinger for Watermelon Sushi and my fesadilla. And a special thank you to my friend Brian Mills, who is the one who came up with the idea for the connection between Rickrolling and molecular gastronomy. He's kind of a silent producer of sorts. Your Last Meal is produced by me and Laura Scott. Original theme music by Prom Queen. If you have a question, a compliment, an idea for a guest, or a good question that you think I should include when I do my speed rounds, send us an email. Go to yourlastmealpodcast.com. And a very important note, but also very last minute, tomorrow... Friday, August 26th, is the very first in-person Your Last Meal live show. We were invited to perform at Thing Festival in Port Townsend, a super cool music and art festival put on by Adam Zacks, who used to produce the Sasquatch Festival in Washington. And I am just thrilled to be on this lineup with folks like Father John Misty, Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, Modest Mouse, Jose Gonzalez, Wet Leg, and so many others. And if you're not a festival person, Thing is actually a little bit smaller, a little bit more low-key, a little more adult, and... Fun fact, it is at Fort Warden in Port Townsend, which is where they shot an officer and a gentleman. Find a link to tickets to ThingFest in the show notes and come and see the live show. Friday afternoon, stick around and say hello after. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. That took three days to make that joke for the, like, 30 seconds of hilarity. 100% worth it. would do it again in a heartbeat. Well, that's basically Thanksgiving. You know, you cook Thanksgiving for two days, and everybody gobbles it down in 20 minutes, and nobody even laughs about it. So your version is better. Put your turkey on a whoopee cushion this year and see if it's a better meal. (laughs) That's the quote that if this was an article, I would, like, bold and put in the center, very large and quoted. Local inventor says, put your turkey on a whoopee cushion this year. Those are cute. Everything's cute here. You live in a house of cute. It's like Hello Kitty and you. (laughs) 